Our friends at the New Republic have recently introduced The Politics of Everything, hosted by TNR literary editor Laura Marsh and staff writer Alex Perrine. The podcast explores the intersection of culture, politics, and media. You can find The Politics of Everything wherever you get your favorite podcasts, like ours. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Hong Kong's approach to preventing the spread of COVID-19 has been among the most effective in the world. Social distancing, contact tracing, mandatory quarantine, anonymous public health surveys, and changes to behavior in public spaces are among the crucial measures that were implemented quickly. And because the infection rate has remained low, the territory has now begun to roll back certain restrictions, which in turn has meant that pro-democracy protesters have returned to the streets. In the May issue, Yi Ling Liu reports on the protests as they were before the pandemic, exploring the multivalent identities of those who live in Hong Kong, including her own. In this episode, she joins me to discuss recent developments in the protest movement and the social and economic factors that contributed to its emergence. Your piece was published before the spread of the coronavirus put the protests on hold. Could you catch us up on the main developments that have taken place since then? Yeah, so the coronavirus, I guess, has totally changed the nature of the protests just because public gatherings can't take place anymore. Right after the virus emerged in Hubei, it hadn't yet spread to Hong Kong. And so protests were still taking place. This is mid early January. And there was both kind of solidarity as well as a sense of opposition to what was taking place in the mainland. So on one hand, you saw protests that were kind of nonviolent, you know, vigils. Some of them were commemorating the the whistleblower doctor, Li Wenliang, who spoke at and told other doctors about the virus when authorities were trying to suppress information. So there was definitely overlap in you know, what the protesters were fighting for and what Li Wenliang stood for. Um, but at the same time, you saw things like firebombs being thrown into buildings that were being set up as quarantine sites because people didn't want the virus to be coming in from the mainland to Hong Kong. Um, but once the virus did started appearing in Hong Kong, as social distancing measures were being put into place, those protests also waned and died down. But very recently, the first mass gathering, the first sizable public gathering, happened yesterday at a mall. And I guess it's notable because no, there have been no protests or public gatherings of that size since at least late March. And so that is a notable event. And then also on the 18th, there is an arrest of 15 pro-democracy activists. And such a huge arrest would actually be, it is a huge deal, but I feel like given all the coronavirus coverage that's been taking place, uh, both in Hong Kong and in the world, it, it probably hasn't gotten as much attention as it would have in, in different circumstances. Yeah, so let's talk about that. How were they found? How were they arrested? What are the charges 
against them? Some of the most basic charges are just for participating in the protests. And I think what's notable about the arrests is that a good portion of the activists are very high profile, um, well-known, respected figures in the Hong Kong community. One of the most famous ones being Martin Lee, who's this in his 80s, some people call him the father of democracy. And he, along with another lawyer, Margaret Ng, um, and a media tycoon called Jimmy Lai, they're all like very well known. And um, many of them aren't what you would call, you know, radical protesters. They are advocates of nonviolent civil disobedience. They are not supportive of Hong Kong independence. Some would say that they're advocates of kind of like a third way, you know, like a moderate way of working within the system. Mm. And so what struck me is that it's kind of an attempt to get rid of this middle way. Like it seems like it's further polarizing or, or just providing people with two choices, which is essentially align yourself with the system or resist like in a very explicit way and or perhaps even violent way and so yeah that that's something that struck me about the arrests so do you feel like because you know the quarantine restrictions had been lifted that was when the government was like okay now is the time to kind of make this statement you know let's let's remove the third way or yeah yeah not too sure about the precise timing but definitely, broadly speaking, as everyone is paying attention to COVID-19, this is kind of like the perfect time if you were a, you know, authoritarian government to step in <laughs> and quash your movement. And that seems to be something that's taking place all over the world, with Hong Kong being no exception, which is protests can't take place when public gatherings are banned. And I mean, so much of the Hong Kong protest movement, I think, is pretty dependent on just international support and international attention. And everyone is just so wrapped up in the various flames that are going off all over the world that the governments can get away with a lot right now. Yeah, and they have been. Um, Would you say that the protests at that mall were in response to the arrest or were they something else entirely? I want to say that they're in response to the arrests, but also a continuation of what has been going on over the last year. Like, yes, there's now this virus, but these same fears, the same anxieties, the same demands have not gone away. Um, And they can't just be wished away. They can't just be quashed. They can't just be quarantined away. It's not like people just suddenly got happy and satisfied under lockdown. And so I very much just see it as a continuation, the kind of like, look, we're not going to go anywhere. And when when it starts getting safe, because I think, you know, Hong Kongers, at least under quarantine, have been very respectful of quarantine rules, quarantine regulations, like, we're all kind of carrying the, the psychological trauma of SARS. And so I think it's been very easy to deal with the containment of the virus. But now that, you know, the virus seems to be waning, it's almost like a statement 
uh, protesters that are that are like, look, we're we're not going anywhere. Toward the end of your piece, you quote a friend who wrote to you saying, quote, I wonder how the outbreak will further cement Hong Kongers perception of the mainland as a biological threat in addition to the political, end quote. How accurate has that speculation proven to be? Because, you know, a big thing that you do when you're at home under quarantine is think. <laughs> yeah. That's all you can do yeah. is just think. <laughs> um, I think it's extremely accurate. And even more accurate than my friend anticipated, because I don't think when he told me that, that he anticipated the virus would spread so far and that the kind of othering would spread as far, you know, like just as far with it. And so it's been very interesting to see, not interesting, that's the wrong (laughs) adjective, horrifying (laughs) to see over the last few months just the kind of circle of xenophobia and othering and racism just kind of expand its its reach, right? So, like, I just remember when the virus started first appearing in, in Wuhan, you know, people in Beijing and Shanghai and, you know, neighboring cities would start turning away people who are coming from Hubei, from hotels and restaurants, you know, like, discriminating against people with Hubei residence cards, even mm. if they hadn't ever set foot in the province in the last few months and then you know as the virus spread throughout the rest of China it was interesting to see in Hong Kong you know in the months of January and February uh, restaurants start to post signs that said we don't serve Mandarin speakers um, uh, no mainlanders allowed you know a lot of kind of like go back to where you came from type rhetoric and then you see it in Vietnam you know like banh mi restaurants were like no Chinese please mm. and then slowly in France it's like the headlines that are like the yellow peril and and what's interesting is like you know the western world and uh, North America and Europe like you, you can't really like can't really distinguish one yellow from the other and so it just becomes this like Hubei anti-Hubei racism has evolved into anti-mainland racism into now just kind of like a blanket fear and racism towards all Asians and it's definitely like equated as a you know the political is equated with the biological it's like yeah we don't want to go to Chinatown because they might serve some bats you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) All, all the old uh, classic racist tropes coming out for this exactly. for this exactly. p- pandemic. Um, yeah, yeah. And I was curious how have the how have people's feelings or the protests kind of evolved? I mean, do you feel like that? You know, you say that they have the same momentum, but how? You know, leaving aside this. Uh, this regional discrimination that's kind of morphed into total mainland discrimination. How have the protesters' demands changed over the course of, you know, this long period? And just like, and also just say like what they were at the start. The demands were pretty clear from the very beginning and there are five of them. The first one is the withdrawal of the extradition bill. And so this was kind of the catalyst in what sparked the protests in the very beginning, the government introduced a extradition bill, which would allow Hong Kong criminals to be extradited back to the mainland. And so there's a fear that this was kind of encroaching on the freedoms of Hong Kong people. 
that's actually been the first demand that has been fulfilled. It was withdrawn, but that was, I think, in, in October or November. And so by the time that bill was withdrawn, things had just escalated beyond a point to which the protests were no longer just about this extradition bill. They're about kind of the future and the life of Hong Kongers. The second demand was to introduce a commission of inquiry into alleged police brutality. That's been a big part of the protests, um, how police have been treating protesters and um, a lot of protesters have wanted investigations into you know what has been taking place. The third is the retraction of the classification of protesters as rioters. At one point, a I think it was a police officer who, def- who called the protesters rioters and rioting is a crime that you can get up to, I think, 10 years of punishment. And so they wanted to take away that, that statement. The fourth is amnesty for arrested protesters, which is on a similar vein, similar idea. And the last is kind of what I think is at the heart of a lot of this, which is universal suffrage which means the ability for Hong Kongers to choose their own leaders. Could you explain why the government was set up like that? I'll try my best. It's a bit of a complicated political system. But essentially how it works is that the top leader of Hong Kong is called the chief executive, Carrie Lam. And Carrie Lam is not directly elected by the people. She's elected by a 1,200 member committee, which consists partially of representatives from the business world and partially from members of the Legislative Council, which is Hong Kong's legislature, and partially from members of the Chinese government. And the idea was that this system would evolve, that after the handover, in 97, there would be a slow process of what is called in the Hong Kong Basic Law, which is kind of like a constitutional-like document that describes the system, that there would be a gradual move towards universal suffrage. But the language of that document was sufficiently vague that, you know, what exactly universal suffrage consisted of how and when and under what timeline it would be implemented were all not made clear. And so this is allowed over the course of the last few decades for this to be a matter of contention. And then, because 97, a hugely important year when Hong Kong was returned, well, it feels weird to say that, right? That's, yeah. But that's how colonialism works, I guess. Um, yeah. So in, in the piece, you know, and you're talking about this far off year 2047, where this process will supposedly have taken place. But in the present, people are just sort of stuck in this nowhere land, and there doesn't seem mm-hmm. any motivation to change it. And in the piece, you mentioned the desire not only to stop the clock, but to turn it back. So can you describe Hong Kong's internal culture before the handover and like, you know, how it was perceived and how, you know, things kind of worked there before China and now how China has kind of changed Hong Kong's culture in addition to this political aspect? 
Yeah. I think some of the changes are unrelated to China, or they are kind of related to China and kind of not. So, for example, I'd say in addition to kind of this the slow erosion of these freedoms, like the judicial system, one country, two system, this idea that, you know, you have free speech and independent press. I think one pretty key component of what I think a lot of people are sensing are trickling away is this idea of social mobility. And any time like social mobility and economics are brought into the equation, I think there are just so many different factors at play. My impression is that before the handover, at least in the 80s, and up until the 90s, there's this idea, there's very much this almost American ideal of, you know, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. Like you can be waiting tables as a young kid and born into a lower class family and slowly rise up the ranks financially just by working hard. And I don't think that's that's quite unique to Hong Kong. I think that's like that's a rhetoric that a lot of places in the world had before the turn of the millennium, even in the early two mm. thousands. And I think the the feeling that you can decide your own future and make money and live a good life and raise a family have been disappearing. And I think it's related to, but not entirely as a result of, you know, a lot of immigrants coming in, right? Like and whenever mm-hmm. mainland immigrants specifically. And so mainland immigrants are seen not only as this kind of like political encroachment, but also an economic threat. Like they're gonna they're gonna take away our jobs, they're gonna um, all the classics. Take away our resources. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Same narrative. Very familiar narrative. It's very interesting to see this the similar narrative kind of grafting on to different places. And then in terms of culture, just like little things like Hong Kong, because it was such a unique hybrid kind of international city, is very proud of, you know, local culture. It's, you know, like local Dai Pai Dongs, which are kind of like small restaurants, the Cantonese language, dialect is a huge part of Hong Kong culture. And before 97, I mean, I I was too young to really understand what the world was like, but my surroundings were like, but I I think it was a lot more British. Like you could definitely feel Mm -hmm. the presence of British culture much more strongly. And so... An interesting thing that I see in a lot of the protesters' rhetoric, and I don't think that this is representative at all, but you always see at a protest, inevitably, the Union Jack being raised. Um, And there's always kind of like a small group of protesters who are nostalgic about time under British rule. But I think the large majority of protesters do realize that it's not like things were much better under colonialism and that the the Brits are not going to like swoop in and save Hong Kong at this point. And so I think it's kind of like a small manifestation of that, that sense of nostalgia and desire to return. Sure. And it's pretty clear that the U.S. is also not going to swoop in and help the protesters because... Um, I don't even want to try to describe what that that relationship is so strange right now where Joe Biden has an attack ad that Donald Trump was being too nice to China. 
Like it's just, yeah. it's completely incoherent. It's so bizarre. I think it all, this is something that I just can't get my head around. And it's all kind of based on this premise of like the enemy of your enemy is your friend. There's just like this weird geopolitical like chess game where everyone's trying to like suss each other out. Mm-hmm. And um, I think one moment that I just found so wild was when I was at one of these large, peaceful mass protests on New Year's Day. And I saw a poster with Trump's face on it, but it was an appeal to Trump. It was like, look, like save Hong Kong, essentially. Yeah. And I was thinking, Trump's not Trump's not gonna save Hong Kong. Like, like <laughs> you know, like it was just like it was such a bizarre kind of alliance. Mm-hmm. And and like and I think another anecdote that that illustrates this strange, unholy alliance that will definitely not work is I was reading an article written, um, it's in this collective of writers who, a lot of them are diasporic Hong Kong writers um, called La Zan. And there's a writer who is a Hong Kong student but moved to New York and I think is now a student in New York. And he was writing about how on October 1st, which is China's National Day, uh, there was a flag raising ceremony in New York. And so a lot of mostly elderly Chinese Americans in Chinatown went to go and raise the flag to kind of demonstrate their patriotism. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a young, enthusiastic pro democracy advocate who was very anti the, the nationalist tone that China was asserting across the world at that point. And so he went to go and protest this flag raising ceremony. In, in kind of earnest and desire to to promote the pro-democracy cause. And when he arrived at the flag raising ceremony, he found other people like him, you know, dressed in black, wearing masks, fellow protesters of the Hong Kong cause. But he found himself sharing that space with, I think, like right-wing American nationalists mm. who, you know, like were straight out of like a straight pride um, <laughs> type setting who yeah. were also protesting the flag raising ceremony because they were anti-China. And so it was just like a very strange moment to be in to find yourself as a Hong Kong pro-democracy protester sharing the stage with yeah. right wing trade pride goers. <laughs> like it's it's just it's you know it's a very strange ethical quandary to be in. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things your piece does a really excellent job of is showing how sort of these traditional ideas of left and right are kind of getting jumbled up. And so much of that has to do with identity. Mm -hmm. And you describe the rift in Hong Kong is largely generational, because you talk about the sense of political resignation and fatigue that you saw in your father and it's and somewhat similar political rift seems to exist between Lorenzo and his father who's against the protest yeah so how much of that yeah. this divide comes from the fact that old the older generation came to Hong Kong before the UK handed it over to China while the young generation were born like you you know around or after that transition had taken place mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah I think it's definitely of all the divides that I could find the generational one was the most marked, right? Like even more so than socioeconomic, you know, ethnic, racial, gender divisions. Like it was definitely generational divides 
that were the most prominent, though I'd have to put the caveat that there were certainly a lot of young people who would identify as blue and kind of pro-stability and a lot of old elderly and maybe middle-aged people who are very yellow and very pro-democracy, pro-protests. But I think your your question about whether or not the hinge is the handover, I wouldn't say that the hinge is so much the handover of Hong Kong from the UK to China as much as whether a person has experienced instability. Mm. Um, And so... Uh, the thing is, a lot of the elderly generation, because Hong Kong is such a young city, were mostly immigrants and refugees. So a good portion of Hong Kong society comprises of people who fled China in the 50s and 60s, fled the Cultural Revolution. And so a lot of my friends here I'd say a a vast majority of my friends in Hong Kong their grandparents are all either from the mainland or fled from the mainland during a period of strife and maybe their parents as well and their parents maybe have experienced that strife and so when you're coming from an environment which was you know China under the cultural revolution (laughs) and you know like the great leap forward where like there wasn't enough food to be going around on the table and people were dying of famine and like red guards were turning on their parents and you know parading them around the streets in dunce caps like and then you like come to this quiet uh, sleepy and slowly rising prosperous city with freedoms and the rule of law and like a impeccable mtr system mm-hmm. right it's like whoa there's no way we're going back to the thing that we came from and so i think that's the kind of the hinge it's just like did you experience the instabilities of the 50s and 60s and a lot of people in my generation i mean everyone in my generation we didn't we didn't go through that and so all we we've ever known is this very free and stable and orderly society and to see those freedoms being eroded it's like something's being taken away as opposed to like something being preserved right so I actually I feel like I interrupted you I'm sorry (laughs) when you were talking about the protesters bands (laughs) so can we can we go back to that one sorry yeah (laughs) I mean I think the demands of their essentially the same like they haven't gone anywhere they haven't been fulfilled they haven't been answered and to be honest I don't think they will be answered like I think it feels pretty intractable and so it's a little bit tragic to be honest like I think the only thing that has changed is perhaps the urgency of the demands or maybe like in November those demands were very urgently fought for and there's perhaps a realization that that kind of a fight is not sustainable and there definitely was a quieting of the more kind of violent actions that were taking place in November mm-hmm. with the district council elections the um, pro-democracy parties won seats overwhelmingly and so there's kind of this renewed hope that perhaps change can come from within the system and so perhaps there are people who are thinking yeah like let's just work within the system let's 
um, stick to nonviolent civil obedience, but there's also a feeling that that will not work. And I think the arrests of you know these prominent democracy activists, you know, on the 18th, is is adding to that sense of hopelessness. Mm. Do I mean obviously electoralism versus grassroots movement? Uh, always the question it's a question happening all over the world yeah so have have the protesters sort of they've done this totally decentralized method of protest that has no real leaders that has this way of kind of protecting everyone physically and it's 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 incredibly well executed have there been other sort of structures that the protesters have built to kind of because you know the the communist party isn't like having meetings with them right the assumption is that this will go away eventually so are the protesters building alternative structures that could potentially replace the current uh government or at least thinking in those terms not that i know of i mean i i don't feel qualified to say that there definitely is not Mm. but nothing obvious there have been no new forms of leadership or like structures emerging to, to fill in the existing form. And do they, I mean, cause this sometimes is a way to build support. Are there other actions the protesters are doing to kind of help not just shore up support, but to sort of fill the gaps in where the current government is lacking I guess like in small ways, like small everyday ways in terms of, you know, like there are lawyers for the protesters who are working pro bono and helping defend those who've been arrested. And then there are, you know, doctors and uh, nurses who are showing their support for the protesters. So I, I don't know how that dynamic has changed in there. COVID-19, but at the time who, you know, would take in injured protesters and make sure they were getting the right care. Like graphic designers who are trying to spread out the message and design posters and send them out to the world, have them stuck on walls, like sent over Telegram. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's, it's definitely just a pretty ad hoc, like wherever help is needed someone jumps in to fill a specific need but I'm not sure there has been any you know like replacement of responsibility of protesters and in, in, in some kind of governance okay. I think that's probably what you mean yeah I mean just because there are ways to address like the income inequality question you know, by mm-hmm, mm-hmm. creating yeah. like, oh, here's here's a place where you can get food for free, and we are doing yeah. this, we are organizing yeah. this. So that, that was sort of what I was yeah. curious about. But yeah, if it is, if it yeah. doesn't happen, it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> they're doing I mean, a great may, job. I, not, yeah, <laughs> not that I know of, but I would also feel I also feel like I I don't know enough. And then I just wanted to close on this question of the actual process of writing, because an impression of a protest is so dependent on who you are walking with and how you see the police reacting to, and then the stories that you hear afterward. 
about how the police reacted to the protesters. So how did you sort of consolidate these different streams of information and use them to shape your piece? Yeah. One thing that I realized and had to reckon with before I even started sourcing and reporting was that the situation was just like so divisive and polarized and there's so many different voices just kind of yelling that there was no way that I would be able to capture the protest in a quote-unquote like objective neutral way that that captured the full kind of spectrum of voices out there and all I could do was my best um and the one thing that I, you know, I'm like very consciously aware of is that like I don't have police voices. I'm not like interviewing police officers and not talking to police officers. I don't know intimately, you know, how they have been perceiving the protests other than through hearsay and through you know, acquaintances. And that's just a matter of access. Like no police officer is probably going to be very willing to talk to a journalist. and my way is just to try to be as empathetic as possible. I think even when I'm looking at a police officer, I'm so conscious of the fact that it's probably, you know, like a 30 year old, you know, someone my age who like joined the forces when it was still super respected and got an honor to be part of the police force and has found themselves in this very bizarre situation where the entire city kind of loathes them or like um, large portions of the city have a deep-seated hatred for the police like I didn't even realize that until I came home and so it's just to like always have that in the back of my mind that at the end of the day like these are just all humans who are in this like pitted against each other in this very ugly way because of this larger geopolitical rift that's taking place and also just like trying to consume as many news sources as possible, not very different from the kind of red blue divide that's taking place in the United States. Like on Sunday, that was the protest that I was sourcing on. I remember sitting down on Monday and I had on my, on my left, on my phone, my Twitter feed opened Hmm. and on my right, I had SEMP opened, which is, you know, like not anti-professor, but definitely a little bit more blue than the typical news outlet. And they were both true. Like they were both very truthful accounts of what had taken place. But on my Twitter, it's just all police brutality, police violence, how the police had, you know, sprayed water cannons over a mosque and how they were disrespecting the Muslim community. And it was just all about events that had taken place that were reflected poorly on the police and then the SNP had this giant massive photo of an MTR in flames and fire bombs being thrown and the headline was like violence takes Hong Kong again as you know protesters take to the streets mm. both were true like I saw both take place over the course of the day um, and it was just a matter of what each news outlet had decided to focus their attention on and so I guess like I saw my role walking through protests that day was to make sure that I had my eyes and gaze on on both. Yeah. And well, actually, speaking of having your eyes and your gaze on the protesters, surveillance is such a huge 
component of these protests. Obviously, there was the uh, anti-mask law that was passed and then repealed because, I mean, you got to wear it when that. Well, really, now you got to wear a mask, um, but because of coronavirus. <laughs> but the the surveillance aspect, how much aside from just sort of the clothing that people would wear and being covered up on very hot days, how does that influence and is the removal of that part of what the protesters would like to see dispensed with? Because it it's, it is a very literal extension of the communist government and, you know, being a level of invasiveness that is just beyond, like, the FBI guy following you back to your house. Like it's just this total other level. Yeah. It's not in the five demands, right? There's no like anti-surveillance clause, but it's definitely on the back of everyone's minds. And it's, it's kind of hard to wrap one's head around because Hong Kong has always been in that sense has felt free. Like I've never felt like I've been surveilled in the last you know, two decades of my life here. And mm-hmm. so it is bizarre to suddenly think that people need to cover their faces and cover their heads and feel like they're being watched. And it, for me, it almost felt preemptive. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering when that preemptive is going to turn into like an actual necessary caution. And I don't know. To be honest, I really don't know. I just, I have no conception of what type of surveillance infrastructures are in place I'm, I'm i'm still kind of naively used to living in a hong kong where those don't exist sorry that doesn't that doesn't really answer your question no that's fine <laughs> no i was i mean you know again there's so much surveillance in the uk there's so much surveillance in the u.s that is just sort of accepted and people maybe they don't really know when that started happening except for that it was post 9-11 but here it is and oh as long as I don't do anything bad I should be fine when the the larger question of your personal freedom is just sort of like shooed away but when 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 it comes to this when you are out on the streets and you're trying to achieve goals it it is a very pressing question so Yeah. yeah Yeah, it's definitely a slow creep for sure. Mm. All right. Well, I think we can end it there. So thank you very much. Thanks, Violet. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 